You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to uh, another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am being joined today by Dr. David Keepnews. Dr. Keepnews is currently Executive Director of the Washington State Nurses Association, a professional association and labor union. He has devoted the past three decades of his professional career to advancing the nursing profession as a policy analyst, advocate, educator, and educational administrator. He has backgrounds in nursing, public health, law, and health policy. He has served as policy director for the American Nurses Association and served in leadership positions in state and national nursing organizations, including the American Academy of Nursing, where he served as a board member for six years. Dr. Kipnius is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing, the New York Academy of Medicine, and the Academy of Nursing Education. He is board certified as a nurse executive, advanced by the American Nurses Credentialing Center, and is an alumnus of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Executive Nurse Fellows Program. He is currently a board member of the Washington Center for Nursing and sits on the board of children and adults with attention deficit slash hyperactivity disorder. Welcome to the show, Dr. Keepnews. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I know you're super busy, so I appreciate you spending a few minutes with me uh, today. Uh, I'm going to start with asking you, how did you get started in the world of nursing? Many years ago. Um, so I, when I graduated um, high school, um, I had no idea what, it, what I wanted to do uh, when I grew up, even though at that point I thought I was grown up and um, sort of started off in college actually as a Latin American studies major, even though I had never been to Latin America, but I was interested in Latin America and liked to practice my Spanish, but sort of realized that that, um, that, that wasn't necessarily where I wanted to go in terms of uh, my academic focus or my uh, sort of professional pursuit and just sort of, um, wandered in the desert, so to speak, and then decided, um, okay, if I don't know what I want to do, let me take some time off and, and not not waste time. I always like learning, but sort of let, let me figure, let me find my focus before I do this. And uh, by that time I was living in San Francisco, I went to work uh, initially in medical records and then as a, as a unit clerk, um, in a hospital in San Francisco. I, I knew I was interested in, in healthcare and in, in working with people and helping people, didn't know what my focus would be. And while working as a unit clerk, I was able to observe what nurses were doing, get to know a lot of nurses. And I was so impressed 
at that point by what nurses did um, for patients and how they did it. Um, I happened to work uh, in various units because uh, I was afloat um, and was really impressed by uh, the level of commitment and compassion and also I think the um, the diplomatic skills in dealing, <laughs> dealing with family members and especially in dealing with um, physicians and other professionals and just the level of independence and of being able to think for themselves and advocate for the patient. And, you know, that advocacy, as I saw it, took different forms. I mean, there were times when, you know, you so really argue and really get into a conflict, whether it was with, you know, nursing supervisor over staffing issues or with a physician that was insisting on something that would be harmful. But often it would be uh, in more subtle ways of sort of alerting the physician to an error that she or he made without embarrassing them and without sort of creating friction there. And I was really amazed at that combination of uh, technical skills of scientific knowledge and just that innate understanding of people and sort of how to work effectively uh, with with difficult people and just sort of how to how to read the room so to speak and it really turned it really presented itself as just being so effective um, for patients really caring and really knowing so much and I just thought this, this looks great. If I can be like that, <laughs> that's what I want to do. And so I, um, I applied to nursing school and, um, and went and continued actually working uh, per diem um, as a unit clerk for, for most of that time, uh, which was a great combination because uh, most of the nurses by then knew me. So they were really supportive. They also made sure that I was uh, warned about <laughs> some of the things that I'd encounter in nursing, uh, but also really eager to, to teach me to sort of just to keep me alert as to things that were going on. So anyway, that's a very long answer, but that's, uh, that's how I first got into nursing. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, now, did you go to, what kind of program did you go into? Was it a, a, a four-year program or? It, it was, it was a four, it was a, a traditional four-year program. Um, during my previous time in school, I hadn't uh, completed a degree. And in those days we didn't have, you know, advanced, um, uh, accelerated rather uh, right. second degree programs. So it was a, it was a, a four-year program. I had to, um, start from the beginning as a, as a, as a freshman at my advanced age at that time of 23. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually funny because at that time, uh, faculty would sort of, you know, identify me as an adult learner. And, you know, I was, and I was one of the older students in my class at age 23. It seemed to people who are coming into nursing now, that probably seems very odd because I know, see, um, a wide range of ages and experience of people uh, coming into nursing. But in, in those days and at that particular school, it was mainly a traditional uh, group of people starting right after high school, uh, primarily uh, female. I think I was, I was out of a class, it was a very large class of maybe 150 people. And I think there were five men. So, um, you know, things have changed a lot, but, uh, but 
yeah. So I did, I did that. I, I was able to take a lighter load later on because a lot of the courses I'd taken before were electives, but, okay. um, but yeah, I did a, a four-year program. That's great. Uh, I think I was, I want to say by the time I got into nursing program, I think I want to say I was like 31 because I had my, I had been in the service before I yeah. got out and went back to school and uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a different animal going to school as a, as the more as an older person, I don't want to say I was like, uh, as somebody who wasn't the traditional like, right. straight out of high school. So it's very, it's, it's right. different. I mean, you're even treated a little bit different, which is, which is uh, strange. Uh, that's great. Uh, now you, uh, what was your first uh, experience as going into the nursing work, workforce? Like, how did you start out uh, your professional career? Well, I started out um, in uh, psychiatric nursing. The um, the common wisdom that I heard from most people was, I mean, first of all, as we were doing our different rotations, um, I, I I loved psych, I loved peds also. Uh, Medsurg was okay, but um, not um, not I, your cup I, of tea. It wasn't what what it wasn't what drew me, and the yeah. criticism of it. But so I. Um, I really felt, this sounds strange, I felt I belonged in psych, that, that, could, be, <laughs> that could be misinterpreted um, or, or not. But, um, and the common wisdom was, no, you have to go right into med surge. You need the foundation of, of those skills. You need to do that. And people would tell you differently, six, at least six months, at least a year, at least two years. And I really struggled with, with that. And, um, you know, on the one hand, didn't want to, didn't want to do something that was going to um, harm me in terms of learning and getting the experience I needed. But on the other hand, didn't want to take a traditional route just because it was the traditional route and sort of decided that I would go right into the specialty in which I really wanted to work. And maybe in some ways it was because everybody was telling me I needed to do something like the way they did it, that that made me want to do something different. But anyway, I uh, yeah. I, I started off in psych at a um, oh, one of the um, locked in patient units at uh, at San Francisco General Hospital, uh, county hospital there, and um, I really I really loved it. Um, I it just and I really liked work. It, it's funny um, before I graduated, uh, I worked. Um, through a registry, through an, through an agency as a, um, as an, as a nursing assistant and um, uh, was assigned to, to psych units in different hospitals. And I remember uh, speaking with people at one a psych unit at one private hospital, which shall go nameless, but they were sort of showing me around. And then they said, well, you know, we only have one uh, seclusion room and we don't have restraints. And I said, well, what do you, what do you do with, with patients that are really, you know, really aggressive or, or really, and she goes, oh, well, we send them to San Francisco General Hospital. <laughs> we, we don't work for the, and I, and I'd been doing, I had done my psych rotation there and I thought, okay, that's where I want to work. I want to work, I want to work in the place that takes the patients that nobody else will take. And um, that, that was definitely San, <laughs> San Francisco General. Um, I did, I did that. And then, uh, 
worked at the um, Community Mental Health Center, uh, what was then uh, Mission Mental Health in San Francisco in their acute day treatment program uh, for a little while. So anyway, that was that was my start um, and did, did, did psych, community mental health, later worked in a, a sub substance abuse clinic and then worked uh, many years, especially when I went back to school and was working per diem in um, psych emergency. So I worked in psych emergency first in, uh, in New York at, uh, at, at Bellevue Hospital and then uh, uh, at San Francisco General for, for several years. And um, uh, I, I enjoyed that. Um, that's great. Uh, that's great. Uh, you mentioned something that you didn't want to do uh, what everybody else was sort of telling you. And I was sort of the same way because it's so funny of how many uh, faculty we have within the world of nursing that are sort of, I want to say, feel that that traditional route of you need to have med surge before you do anything else. And I've, you know, I, I, I drank that Kool-Aid for a while. And even though that wasn't the route that I took, uh, but I used to preach that to other people. And then after I started questioning myself, I'm like, why am I preaching that? Because there's so many other opportunities and so many people are successful going into straight into a specialty. Yeah. I mean, so. there are, there are reasons to do it. It's not a right. totally, it's not totally irrational advice. I mean, there, right. I think there are reasons to do it, but there are, I think it depends on sort of what, if people have, if if newly graduating nurses have identified a passion for a specific yeah. area, I mean, when when I was when I was teaching in nursing, and then when I was um, a, a, a dean for a while, and and you know, you would talk to students who just knew they wanted, you know, they wanted to work in in um, in OB, they they wanted to work in LND. I mean, this was what they loved and what they wanted to do. And they were tortured by the idea of sp spending two years in, in med surge, not because yeah. there's, there's a need for med surge, but they, in their hearts were telling them. Uh, and it's like, why, you know, especially yeah. when there are shortages all over, like right. why, you know, why do that? But on the other hand, certainly I think if somebody isn't sure, it makes good sense. And there, I mean, I think there are um, sort of foundational skills that you, that you can get that certainly are transferable and right. sort of learning just, um, you know, assessment organization. And so um, I think it depends. So I don't, yeah. I don't think it's, it's off the wall to recommend it, but, but not as sort of a religious tenet of, right. you know, that you know, thou shalt only <laughs> start off mid surge. Uh, I agree. Um, I mean, for for me, I think the biggest uh, uh, the biggest push because med surge is its own specialty. Like yes. I've I've worked uh, I've worked emergency room and I've attempted to work med surge and it's a completely different skill set. Um, so uh, so it is its own specialty and I and I think. At what the reason I kind of moved away from preaching sort of everybody should do med surge first is because there are so many there aren't many um, uh, programs in place that make it easy for you to transfer into a specialty once you've gone into a med surge 
unit, right? Like if I want to go critical care, it's difficult to make that transition with a solid program to transition you into critical care. And I think that's where my hangup is right now is I wish there was better programs in place within the institution that helped you transfer into the, into specialty areas if you decided to do that or, um, so yeah, I agree. But again, mass search is is its own specialty and, and I'm very, um, humbled by the work that med surgery nurses do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, how did you, uh, uh, what, what was your next step after you did your rotation? Because I know you eventually got into law and other other areas. How did you make well, that? So I, wor- I worked um, in psych and mental health for a while. And um, it's, it's interesting. While I was working in uh, community mental health in San Francisco, um, now, I, I'd always been interested in, in politics and social issues. Uh, I, I hadn't necessarily uh, considered yet how that might develop into sort of a specialty interest of mine in, in terms of nursing and healthcare. But um, there was a, a, a change in the law in California, and we're talking 30 something years ago, no, close to 40 years ago, <laughs> but for the state um, uh, Medi- uh, Medicaid program, or Medi-Cal in, in California, where uh, at one time it would be um, anybody that didn't have insurance and needed medical care would automatically uh, be enrolled into Medi-Cal. So, and then there was a change, this is for the, so-called medically indigent adult program, where um, those individuals who had no insurance and didn't otherwise qualify um, uh, for the sort of traditional standards for Medi-Cal would be, uh, could only be hospitalized at at their county facility. Mm. So literally overnight, because I think that went into effect on the, I think it was July 1st of that year, if that was the start of the fiscal year, where I worked in an acute day treatment program, um, if we had a patient who needed to be hospitalized, because it was really more like a either um, a transitional program, uh, sort of for people who didn't need a hospitalization, but needed some structured program, but it was also an alternative to hospitalization for people who might be um, acute, but not in need of hospitalization. And sometimes it turns out that those folks did. I mean, you sort of try them on this outpatient uh, basis. And, you know, so it was not unheard of that we would have to send patients to be evaluated at psych emergency. And then if they needed to be hospitalized, um, there, you know, basically any hospital that had a bed available could take patients from uh, the county hospital uh, psych emergency. So with this change in the law, the patients, and not just our patients, but any patients who showed up to psych emergency and needed hospitalization, if they didn't have insurance, including if they didn't have current uh, Medicaid or Medi-Cal, they could only be hospitalized at that, at that hospital. Now, at the time, I think there were four inpatient units. So there were a lot of beds, but the beds would fill up. And then those patients would spend days and sometimes several days 
waiting around in a relatively small psych emergency room that I mean, and so sort of that abrupt change in in this law that I think nobody that I knew uh, sort of they might have been vaguely aware of that change or probably not. But to see the immediate effect on our patients and other patients to go from where if you needed a hospital bed, you, you might have a, a wait of a few hours until the bed opened up somewhere, but to where people were staying in psych emergency uh, for days and being managed, I mean, not exactly a therapeutic milieu. I mean, just that sea change uh, literally overnight. And, um, and here I am, you know, working as a nurse and I thought fairly aware of political issues. And as I said, no one that I knew and worked with had any idea this change was coming and sort of seeing how even what was seen as sort of just a, you know, most people just think, oh, that's one of those sort of complex, you know, bureaucratic changes. Um, and it really got me to thinking about that connection between policy and, um, and patient care and, and public health. And um, again, it wasn't, it wasn't that I'd never thought about sort of social issues and policy, but I didn't know much about it. And I really, it really started me uh, focused on understanding that process in terms of legislation, but also regulation, you know, it's sort of the implementation and, and how those things are carried out. And then of course led to an interest in how we as nurses and other professionals, first of all, need to, need to have some awareness of, of that, not see it as the domain just of experts, um, okay. but that we need to have some basic understanding, both to be um, alert to those changes, but also how we uh, help to shape those changes. Um, you know, if we're going to be effective advocates for our patients um, and for ourselves, we need to know what's what's going on in state legislatures, in Congress. Uh, need to make ourselves heard and then be ready to advocate. And so that that got me um, interested in that. And soon after that, or relatively soon after that. I decided at that point to go to law school because that was the route that I was aware of in terms of understanding uh, laws, policies, the legal system, and the impact on patient care. So that was sort of my uh, my entree um, into that. Um, after law school, um, I uh, worked for about a year for... Um, the regional office in San Francisco of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in their um, regional attorney's office. Uh, and then um, the California Nurses Association, which at that time was still um, affiliated with, with ANA um, as a professional association. Uh, I literally saw an ad in the paper uh, for, uh, uh, they were recruiting for a staff member a staff person uh, to work in their lobbying office and focusing on uh, relationships with government agencies. So sort of with regulatory policy. And um, it's funny, I, I looked at doing that and because I was living in San Francisco, the job was in Sacramento and uh, 
most people in San Francisco have a certain attitude about Sacramento, <laughs> sort of like, you know, where is it? And um, I sort of debated back and forth about it. And what's funny is one of my good friends in law school said, well, if you don't apply for that job in Sacramento, um, I'm never going to talk to you again. And I, I said, well, really? That's like, like, I mean, he didn't literally mean it, but he said, don't you remember on like the first day of law school when we met and you, and you said that, that I, I said, when people said, well, what do you plan to do when you finish? And I said, well, I'm not sure if I'm really going to, you know, spend my career practicing as, as a lawyer. And they said, well, like, what would, what else would you do? And I, apparently he said, because he said that I said, I said, I don't know, maybe I'll go work as a lobbyist for the Nurses Association. <laughs> so he said this was, so um, I said, okay, if, if I said it, then anyway, so that was sort of my entree into, uh, into uh, uh, health policy uh, for, for nursing. So it was really working and advocating uh, before uh, the different health agencies, the Board of Registered Nursing, um, other, other government uh, agencies that had an impact on health and on nursing. That's great. Um, it's not a path that uh, too many, I know, actually, I know, I know, I want to say, I don't know, like five or six people that have taken the path you've taken with the law school, but it's not a path uh, too many uh, nurses take. Um, and it's commendable because it's, the, it's like sort of a dedication to understanding because um, I work in the in the veteran community uh, quite a bit, and some of the stuff I read, uh, I have to reach out to a friend of mine who works in the same community, but he's he's got a law background, and I'm like, what does this mean? Please <laughs> explain to me what they're saying here. Well, I mean, a couple things real quickly. One is, I think that route of being a, a nurse and an attorney, um, it's certainly becoming more common. I mean, when I started uh, law school. Um, I think, um, I don't know, I think there were just a, a, a relative handful. There was, and, and there still is, the um, American, uh, uh, American Association of Nurse Attorneys, um, which has uh, uh, continued to grow and I think attract more people. So it's, it's, it's less uncommon than it used to be. Used to be. But, um, but the other thing is, you know, the example that you gave of sort of having, you know, ask an attorney friend, like, what does this mean? You know, this is one thing that I've really been um, devoted to. I mean, uh, that sort of the ability to translate from sort of bureaucraties into English or whatever, whatever right. language someone might prefer. And I, I think it's a really important skill, but one of the things um, I've always say whatever role I've been in, this included, you know, when I was teaching and when I would teach um, health policy is like, don't, don't be intimidated by, you know, it's just like we speak in code sometimes because, you know, I remember at one point um, talking to my brother about um, uh, my, well, my late father, but when he was uh, alive and, and sort of having some uh, difficulties and my brother was visiting him and I said well um is he ambulatory and my brother goes what does that mean you mean is he walking and I said oh yeah that's what I meant and so you know just as we sort of have our lingo it's sort of um 
uh, um, policymakers and, and bureaucrats uh, tend to have theirs. And But what I also tell people is that don't be intimidated because often like these rules and policies are written in a way um, um, intentionally or not, but I think it's sort of embedded in the culture. Uh, they're written in a way that to discourage you from reading them and understanding them because it's, it sort of belongs to this, you know, insider group. Right. So I really try to, again, try to sort of demystify that. And, and, you know, I just think, um, uh, try to help make people see that, that these are accessible and that, I mean, certainly it makes sense to talk to people with expertise and, you know, if it's not clear, but, you know, I really reject the idea that understanding sort of laws, legislation, regulations, policy has to belong only to so-called experts um, because I just, I really, really believe in a more <laughs> democratic, if you will, approach to that. And that um, to me, it's part of empowerment uh, for, for nurses and for others. Um, and when I used to teach health policy in nursing school, I mean, it would, you'd see, well, back when, back when we taught in person <laughs> and you could, you could see people's reactions, um, you know, people would start off, uh, many of them very nervous about this stuff. And at the point that they're able to really get it and sort of be able to do that translation in their heads and really understand, um, I mean, it's really, it's exciting to see. And to me, that applies not just with students, but now that I'm in the position uh, that I'm in, you know, with uh, many members and sort of, again, uh, encouraging people to uh, understand and to be interested and to recognize that it's not, it's not as complicated as people would have you think. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. I think my, my biggest hangup is when it starts getting into some of the, like you said, the terminology uh, and like what, so I always am like, is this what I think it means or am I reading this now? So I think it's important yeah. for, for nurses to, and especially if you're doing advocacy work to understand uh, what we are, what we are um, uh, supporting or advocating for, uh, especially, and then learning some of that language. So very important. Um but that's not where you left your career. You went on and got your uh, PhD, and you've done. You've been in academia. How did you? How did you maneuver through through those? Uh... Well, um, so when I worked for um, CNA for the California Nurses Association, I was there for about four years. A uh, position opened up at the American Nurses Association, uh, actually dealing with, again, primarily with. Um, uh, regulatory issues. And um, so initially I was in their government relations office, but some of them were the same issues I dealt with. Actually, one issue that sort of followed me around for much of my career was um, uh, reimbursement for advanced practice nurses. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of work on that at CNA. And then that was, uh, did a lot of work at, on that at ANA. So that was sort of my transition to ANA. And then was in a few different roles. Um, we had um, 
the executive director at that time, uh, Jerry Marullo, uh, started an office of policy um, because we had people doing work in policy in various ways, certainly a, a very able um, lobbying office. And many of the different departments were doing different things that touched on policy. Now, this was a really long time ago. So this was in the early and mid nineties. Uh, Initially, when I went there, that was right at the start of the Bill Clinton um, health reform proposal, which some of your listeners may, <laughs> may remember, remember. Others, it may be, you know, prehistory, but, um, um, and one of the things was sort of uh, having everybody on track and sort of um, with the same understanding and the same messaging, because the policy environment was changing so quickly. So a lot of what I did was really um, coordinating uh, sort of policy positions, policy initiatives, and um, um, a lot of writing, but really sort of helping to, to head up that sort of um, uh, unified effort on policy. And I became more and more aware that um, really to, to, to speak um, uh, uh, authoritatively on policy, that, that more and more um, uh, policymakers were, were looking at and expecting uh, um, an evidence base to what was being advocated and to be able to answer questions about it. So I think research was becoming more and more an element of policy, it was, and it was not an area that I really had um, been learning about. The, the other thing was after at that point, about eight years of advocating for, for nursing, I felt like I developed a lot of expertise in nursing issues related to policy, but, but that was somewhat narrow. And I, I wanted a broader understanding of, of health policy issues. My feeling was even if I went right back to advocating for nursing, I wanted a, a broader base of knowledge. So um, I, um, I went to um, uh, the, the um, PhD program at the, the Heller Graduate School at Brandeis University, uh, which had, uh, the, the degree was in social policy, but it um, included a health policy concentration. It had and continues to have a really strong reputation in that area. I was lucky enough to get, a, um, uh, to get funding, uh, uh, fellowship from, um, uh, um, AHRQ um, and uh, so, uh, at the federal government, uh, and so um, did that, and so did did my did my PhD there, and from there um, I uh, I began sort of my my teaching career, my academic career, but at the same time, sort of um, although I was no longer on staff with the nursing organizations, remained active um, and um, as with a few other academics sort of with a policy focus or with other focuses, um, sometimes uh, the teaching environment or the university environment sometimes is also a good home from which to, uh, you know, to be, act to be active in nursing organizations. And it's, it's not, um, it's, it's not that the two aren't related, but um, but so uh, that kept me current, if you will, in terms of in terms of policy. And I really um, 
I really enjoyed uh, working with students, especially focusing on policy, but also just, um, um, you know, having a chance to work with people entering the profession and also with people who have been in the profession and are looking at advancing their roles. And, you know, even though I'm not a, a clinician, certainly not an advanced clinician, um, you know, my, my feeling and strong belief, and I know I'm not alone in this, is that uh, nurses and especially, well, I, I don't wanna say especially, but, but definitely including uh, nurses going into advanced roles really, really need a grasp of policy, mm -hmm. uh, whether they believe that or not at the point that they're students. So I, I as I said, I, I got accustomed to sort of starting off the semester with a lot of skeptical, skeptical students who were in the class just because they had to. And it was sort of, um, you know, part of my job was to make them uh, be interested, make them understand why it was relevant. And that's, I think that's what I particularly loved. Um, and, you know, I would generally be really enthusiastic about it and people would sort of see, you know, either I was just crazy or maybe there really was something interesting or maybe both were true. But, but I really enjoyed that process of, of seeing people who would start off thinking this has nothing to do with me. I'm just being forced to take this, this strange class. And then by the end um, where people really uh, got it and really felt that they had at least the beginning tools to really understand policy and then uh, to really help fill their, their roles as advocates, uh, not just at the bedside or the clinic, but, um, but addressing the sort of the, the broader issues. Yeah, I agree. Uh, policy just impacts so much of what we do, but we don't necessarily call it out. Uh, I, I throw in a little bit of policy in my leadership, my undergraduate leadership courses. And so many of my students are like, I never knew, like my work was impacted by this or new laws or, or legislation that comes out and how they're impacting the workforce, our patients, our patient populations. Um, they're just, uh, because they're not called out anywhere else. And right. if, you, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. And, and also recognizing um that many, certainly not all, but many of the problems that nurses encounter um, in, in practice, um, often the solutions uh, come through policy initiatives. And right. you know, we've seen this over the years in addressing uh, mandatory overtime, or, I mean, just, I mean, I, I remember around um, uh, efforts for, um, safer um safer uh, needles and uh and uh, you know certainly around staffing which i think is the far and away the biggest issue affecting nursing practice right now and um certainly we have the example of of california in terms of staffing ratios and uh, here in washington state um uh, Washington State Nurses Association, the organization where I'm executive director, has been working in coalition with two other uh, healthcare unions uh, to spearhead uh, support for uh, legislation here that would enact um, 
safe staffing standards. So would yeah. would would put that in into law, and uh, just think where you know even though I know some people have uh, questions about that, you know, should government be setting uh, those standards? I I think we're at a point now where uh, nurses are in in. Nurses are so concerned about sort of the state of patient care, about growing patient loads. And, you know, it's interesting because some people will say, oh, well, this is, you know, people are burning out because of COVID. And that's not untrue, but it doesn't really capture the full picture. Um, you know, we've seen over the course of years in many hospitals sort of a systematic um, understaffing and, um, and basically set up. The situation so that with this pandemic, um, sort of, you just don't have the reserves to to lean on because staffing has been so thin, and then now uh, with the Omicron variant and so many people uh, contracting, um, and then being out sick, and so the solution can't just be uh, we're going to we're gonna double your patient loads or we're gonna give you three or four patients in ICU. Um, or what? one thing I probably should have known, but really just recently became aware of, and I'm sure it's not, I'm sure it's true, not just in Washington state, but a real abuse of um, call time where, 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 I mean, I was used to it just for, you know, units like um, uh, the OR or some procedural units where it's unpredictable and you may need people to come in, but now in many instances, using call time uh, basically as a substitute uh, for, for, for staffing and just, um, so, but I mean, basically, um, you know, even though it's a, it's a difficult issue because they're certainly hospitals uh, don't like the idea of, of, of mandated uh, standards, but um, we just think it's, it's, it's come to that. Now we do already have a law in this state um, as a few other states do, uh, hospitals need to have um, uh, staffing committees that are half 50% uh, RNs, 50% management to sort of come up with, a, with staffing plans for each unit and each shift. Um, one of the problems that, is that um, hot, there are so many loopholes in that law that uh, including a sort of an exception for um, emergency situations and or emergency circumstances, which many hospitals now have said, well, the pandemic is an emergency. And it's like, well, yes. And maybe for the first few months you needed to sort of, you know, make some adjustments, but two years into it, it's, it's a little difficult, but, but so we're looking at, at strengthening that, but, you know, if you've got standards in place and, you know, minimum standards, and you've got a mechanism in place like these staffing committees to adjust those upwardly, you know, if you, you know, based on patient acuity, based on any number of things, I think that that can work well. And so it's been interesting to see. I mean, we're just at the start of our legislative session, but so far uh, that's gotten a, a fairly good reception. We'll see. Um, we're hoping for success on that. But anyway, my point, other than sort of talking about this bill that we're excited about, is that I think that that's an example of where um, problems that are being encountered in practice that can't be resolved on a, you know, um, 
hospital by hospital or whatever the setting might be basis need broader solutions. And that's where sort of policy and legislation uh, enter into it. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Uh, I feel a little bit vindicated. Actually, I was I was on the other side of the mic earlier this morning, and I was I was actually talking about some of the same things you brought up now with 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 staffing issues and how the pandemic has exponentially uh, exacerbated that whole uh, staffing concept. And now that we're so spread thin that you don't have you don't have anywhere to go. And it's actually causing a bit of inequities, depending if you can afford to pay the travel nursing rates now, whether you can't, and people leaving those community settings to go to the higher paying uh, travel nurse positions, which is I'm sure is impacting many communities, smaller hospitals that can't afford, you know, seven to 10,000 a week uh, for travel nursing. Um, so definitely an issue. And one of the things I want to say we we sort of saw in California with the staffing ratios is some of the resources went away when, when the ratios kind of came in place where uh, LVNs were taken off the units, CNAs were taken off the mm-hmm. units. We saw the, uh, a decrease where uh, at one of the hospitals that I know of uh, they used to have pharmacists on every on every floor and they took all of those away and centralized and decreased those other things that were very much part of it which made the nursing workload a little bit almost i want to say heavier because all the the resources that they were dependent on all of a sudden went away so it was sort of like a okay, you got your ratios, but we're going to take these other resources away. Uh, which maybe for Washington, it should be a heads up. Make sure you include those resources. As well, part I, of the planning. and it's interesting because um, and and this actually took some discussion, but in working with other unions that represent not just RNs but other healthcare workers, so there right. is some attention in the bill. Uh, to staffing levels for some of the other staff as as well. But, you know, part of the problem there is that, um, you know, if hospitals decide to take away some of those resources, um, it is it a question of, well, they can't afford them now that they're now that they're keeping up these ratios, or is it the same reasons why many hospitals have staffed at low levels that right. they are trying to, uh, you know, minimize expenses. And for what purpose is, is it because, um, is it because they're going to go bankrupt if they do this, or is it because they want to maintain a certain profit? It, and as you know, even the nonprofits, um, uh, it, it just call, it's, it's called, it's mar- a business. It's, it's called, a mar- business. it's called margin. The, right. the other, the other thing I think that, that we see is this, um, uh, rapid growth in these large, uh, national, uh, for-profit, I mean, sorry, nonprofit chains. And so, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't claim to be a total expert on, on, all of the aspects of this, but it does seem to me sort of, you know, in the, in the old days, um, there might be conflicts over things like staffing, but the decision makers were generally in the hospital. And right. so even though there might be conflicts, the CNO and the CEO would know staff, they'd see staff, even if they weren't, um, they might 
you know, go up on, on the floors to see what's going on. But there, there's a sense of you're all in the same place. And, you know, and if you've got some of the overall decision-making on budget and finance um, located um, at some distant, you know, corporate site, which might be, you know, a couple thousand miles away, uh, it's, it's, very, it's very different. And I think it's not just that hospitals run as businesses and to some extent they need to, but I think the, the corporatization and sort of where, where individual hospitals are just you know, one of many, um, I, I think takes away a lot of the human element that, that used to be there. So. Yeah, a lot of a lot of those. Uh, yeah, um, having worked in a couple of those, like you know, having the headquarters not be associated where they are in a building where there's no patient care being provided, right? Uh, and they're dealing with a bunch of just other executives and administrators. Uh, it's a different. It's a different animal. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree. I, I completely agree. Um, now, since you are you are the executive director of a uh, of a union, um, it, how do you see, what, where do you see the, a lot of uh, um, organizations sort of have a love-hate relationship with unions, right? Like some, some hospitals I know for a fact are, you know, actively pursue a path of keeping the unions out of the hospitals. Um, where do you find um, uh, sort of the, the, middle ground where, because uh, I see benefits in unions. Um, I haven't always been a fan of the unions, uh, uh, but over the years, I've grown to appreciate the work that they do. Um, and where do you see uh, sort of the middle ground where we are, we are working more symbiotically uh, in the systems? Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm a great believer in, in collaboration and in people who may have differing interests and different perspectives, at least recognizing common ground. Um, and I think very much um, for us as, as we are a union, but also a professional association. And, you know, I think, um, you know, we just um, really, it's optimal when you know parties can you know, recognize again where they differ but if we have mutual interests in providing good patient care quality patient care and a positive environment for nurses that's going to be supportive of them that's going to respect them and uh, and and give nurses what they need to practice well and to you know have some uh, work-life balance. If those, if both sides recognize those as common interests, I think there are great possibilities to to sit down and work out um, agreements that work for everybody. But and this is something I've found with um, in this state with our um, the the staffing committees and and staffing plans that really depend on. Uh, a collaborative process to work, um, they don't work if that collaboration is one-sided. I mean, it doesn't, it, 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 it really takes a commitment from both parties. 
I, um, so I think it's a very rough environment right now. And I think that um, it, it has become more adversarial in terms of certainly unions and uh, hospital management. Um, that doesn't make me happy. I don't, I, I, that's not a, but, but I think we have to recognize that that's where things are right now. My hope, and it may be naive, but I don't mind being naive, is that, you know, we are in such a state of crisis right now. And, you know, we're hemorrhaging <laughs> nurses. And, you know, I'm glad that there are more and more people wanting to go into nursing, but I worry about um, uh, what's what happens. I mean, I think we all know of new nurses that just decide really quickly, this isn't for me. And um, what I'm hoping is that, um, that there can be some changes that recognize that if we're gonna have a sustainable uh, healthcare system, uh, particularly in acute care hospitals, but not just, that there has to be some long range thinking about what keeps nurses um, able to continue practicing and what kind of environment. I mean, one of the things I see right now is that with, with the crisis that we're having now is many hospitals making things harder for the nursing staff that they have. Like the whole issue of abusing call time where right. for a lot of nurses, it's like, you know, you may, you know, you may end up working uh, 16, 18 hours and then having to show up the next morning and, or this idea that you're all, you, you may get a call at any time. I mean, whether you planned on working called, you know, on call or not. And, you know, hearing that that's a major dissatisfier and that many people encountering that are just leaving or they're going to per diem status because per diems don't take call. But I'm just thinking, you know, the harder it gets out there, it's like hospital leaders, um, and I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because I know it's a system. And so I think right. we have many, certainly many CNOs that see the problem, but may not be in a position to solve it. But if, if your response to, to having insufficient staff um, on, on board is to just increase the workload and give people unsafe assignments and burn people out, like it's just feeding on itself. So I think there really is a need to take a step back and say what what's needed in the long term. You know, I don't think hospital leadership need to like all turn into nice people overnight. I mean, that would be nice, but I think they need to recognize that it's in their interest um, if they want to keep nurses and also if they want to have good outcomes that that also have an impact on their bottom line. Uh, that an investment in nursing pays off for them are recognizing that. I, I don't think that's the dominant trend yet, but I just think um, if this system is going to, I mean, there's a lot of changes that need to take place in the system beyond staffing, but if, if it's gonna survive, if it's gonna be safe for patients to enter <laughs> hospitals, um, got to start taking a different approach. And as I said, um, I think a lot can be worked out and, and, and um, set right. 
with collaboration, but but we can't be the only ones trying to collaborate. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. 100% agree. Um, so uh, I want to be cognizant of your time. Uh, anything else you want to uh, share uh, before we, we end us? You know, I just think, um, so, you know, I've been around a shockingly long, shockingly long time now, and I've seen nursing go through um, a lot of changes. And, you know, but I still, I think despite the challenges, it's, it's a profession like no other. I think the possibilities continue to be uh, astounding. I'm, I'm so... I'm so glad that so many students are are still entering and seeking to enter the profession, even though everybody knows um, or has heard of the challenges. So to me, it you know, for those of us that are working in ways that and trying to improve the system, trying to improve and advance the, the profession, um, I think it it's an even heightened uh, responsibility. But I do think that, um, again, recognizing, nurses recognizing the power that they do have and both as deliverers of, of care, as managers of care, as educators, and effectively using their voices to, to shape change um, that we can't just depend on other folks to do it. And I think that we can continue to, um, to, to set things right and to make this, uh, you know, I think the profession remains attractive despite the problems, but I think it will be even more so. And we can look at long range at, uh, we need to make this a profession that, that doesn't burn people out. And I, I think we can do that. I think the, the worst thing right now is to give up hope and we just we need to recognize the challenges and that we're we're up to them and i think that's what i'll end with <laughs> <laughs> that's great i i i greatly appreciate uh, the work that you're doing and appreciate your voice uh in advocating for the profession uh, so thank you so much thank you for your time we have been listening to dr david keep news uh and we will I'll join you again next time. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources, and don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.